This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Utopia of Usurers by G. K. Chesterton Section 4 8. The Lash for Labour If I were to prophesy that two hundred years hence a grocer would have the right and habit of beating the grocer's assistant with a stick, or that shop-girls might be flogged as they already can be fined, many would regard it as a rather rash remark. It would be a rash remark. Prophecy is always unreliable, unless we accept the kind which is avowedly irrational, mystical, and supernatural prophecy. But relatively to nearly all the other prophecies that are being made around me today, I should say my prediction stood an exceptionally good chance. In short, I think the grocer with the stick is a figure we are far more likely to see than the superman or the samurai or the true model employer, or the perfect Fabian official, or the citizen of the collective state. And it is best for us to see the full ugliness of the transformation which is passing over our society in some such abrupt and even grotesque image of the end of it. The beginnings of a decline in every age of history have always had the appearance of being reforms. Nero not only fiddled while Rome was burning, but he probably really paid more attention to the fiddle than to the fire. The Roy Solil, like many other Solils, was most splendid to all appearance a little before sunset. And if I ask myself what will be the ultimate and final fruit of all our social reforms, garden cities, model employers, insurances, exchanges, arbitration courts, and so on, then I say quite seriously, I think it will be labor under the lash. THE SULTAN AND THE SACK Let us arrange in some order a number of converging considerations that all point in this direction. It is broadly true, no doubt, that the weapon of the employer has hitherto been the threat of dismissal, that is, the threat of enforced starvation. He is a sultan who need not order the bastinado so long as he can order the sack. But there are not a few signs that this weapon is not quite so convenient and flexible a one as his increasing rapacities require. The fact of the introduction of fines, secretly or openly, in many shops and factories, proves that it is convenient for the capitalist to have some temporary and adjustable form of punishment besides the final punishment of pure ruin. Nor is it difficult to see the common sense of this from their wholly inhuman point of view. The act of sacking a man is attended with the same disadvantages as the act of shooting a man, one of which is that you get no more out of him. It is, I am told, distinctly annoying to blow a fellow creature's brains out with a revolver, and then suddenly remember that he was the only person who knew where to get the best Russian cigarettes. So our sultan who is the orderer of the sack, is also the bearer of the bowstring. A school in which there was no punishment except expulsion would be a school in which it would be very difficult to keep proper discipline, and the sort of discipline on which the reformed capitalism will insist will be all of the type 
which in free nations is imposed only on children. Such a school would probably be in a chronic condition of breaking up for the holidays, and the reasons for the insufficiency of this extreme instrument are also varied and evident. The materialistic sociologists who talk about the survival of the fittest and the weakest going to the wall, and whose way of looking at the world is to put on the latest and most powerful scientific spectacles, and then shut their eyes, frequently talks as if a workman were simply efficient or non-efficient, as if a criminal were reclaimable or irreclaimable. The employers have sense enough at least to know better than that. They can see that a servant may be useful in one way and exasperating in another, that he may be bad in one part of his work and good in another, that he may be occasionally drunk and yet generally indispensable. Just as a practical schoolmaster would know that a schoolboy can be at once the plague and the pride of the school. Under these circumstances small and varying penalties are obviously the most convenient things for the person keeping order. An underling can be punished for coming late and yet do useful work when he comes. It will be possible to give a rap over the knuckles without wholly cutting off the right hand that has offended. Under these circumstances the employers have naturally resorted to fines, but there is a further ground for believing that the process will go beyond fines before it is completed. 2. The fine is based on the old European idea that everybody possesses private property in some reasonable degree, but not only is this not true today, but it is not being made any truer even by those who honestly believe that they are mending matters. The great employers will often do something towards improving what they call the conditions of their workers. But a worker might have his conditions as carefully arranged as a racehorse has, and still have no more personal property than a racehorse. If you take an average poor seamstress or factory girl, you will find that the power of chastising her through her property has very considerable limits. It is almost as hard for the employer of labor to tax her for punishment as it is for the Chancellor of the Exchequer to tax her for revenue. The next most obvious thing to think of, of course, would be imprisonment, and that might be effective enough under simpler conditions. An old-fashioned shopkeeper might have locked up his apprentice in his coal cellar, but his coal cellar would be a real pitch-dark coal cellar and the rest of his house would be a real human house. Everybody, especially the apprentice, would see a most perceptible difference between the two. But as I pointed out in the article before this, the whole tendency of the capitalist legislation and experiment is to make imprisonment much more general and automatic while making it, or professing to make it, more humane. In other words, the hygienic prison and the servile factory will become so uncommonly like each other that the poor man will hardly know or care whether he is at the moment expiating an offense or merely swelling a dividend. In both places there will be the same sort of shiny tiles. In neither place will there be any cell so unwholesome as a coal cellar or so wholesome as a home. The weapon of the prison, therefore like the weapon of the fine, will be found to have considerable limitations to its effectiveness when employed against the wretched reduced citizen of our day. Whether it can be property or liberty, you cannot take from him 
what he has not got. You cannot imprison a slave because you cannot enslave a slave. The Barbarous Revival 3. Most people on hearing the suggestion that it may come to corporal punishment at last, as it did in every slave system I ever heard of, including some that were generally kind and even successful, will merely be struck with horror and incredulity, and feel that such a barbarous revival is unthinkable in the modern atmosphere. How far it will be or need be a revival of the actual images and methods of ruder times, I'll discuss in a moment. But first, as another of the converging lines tend to corporal punishment, consider this, that for some reason or other, the old, full-blooded and masculine humanitarianism in this matter has weakened and fallen silent. It has weakened and fallen silent in a very curious manner, the precise reason for which I do not altogether understand. I knew the average liberal, the average nonconformist minister, the average labor member, the average middle-class socialist were, with all their good qualities, very deficient in what I consider a respect for the human soul. But I did imagine that they had the ordinary modern respect for the human body. The fact, however, is clear and incontrovertible. In spite of the horror of all humane people, in spite of the hesitation even of our corrupt and panic-stricken Parliament, measures can now be triumphantly passed for spreading or increasing the use of physical torture, and for applying it to the newest and vaguest categories of crime. Thirty or forty years ago, nay, twenty years ago, when Mr. F. Hugh O'Donnell and others forced a liberal government to drop the cat and nine tails like a scorpion, we could have counted on a mass of honest hatred of such things. We cannot count on it now. 4. But lastly, it is not necessary that in the factories of the future the institution of physical punishment should actually remind people of the jamboke or the knout. It could easily be developed out of the many forms of physical discipline which are already used by employers on the excuses of education or hygiene. Already in some factories girls are obliged to swim whether they like it or not, or do gymnastics whether they like it or not. By a simple extension of hours or complication of exercises, a pair of Swedish clubs could easily be so used as to leave their victims as exhausted as one who had come off the rack. I think it extremely likely that they will be. 9. The Mask of Socialism The chief aim of all honest socialists just now is to prevent the coming of socialism. I do not say it as a sneer, but on the contrary as a compliment, a compliment to their political instinct and public spirit. I admit it may be called an exaggeration, but there really is a sort of sham socialism that the modern politicians may quite possibly agree to set up, if they do succeed in setting it up, the battle for the poor is lost. One must note, first of all, the general truth about the curious time we live in. It will not be so difficult, as some people may suppose, to make the servile state look rather like socialism, especially to the more pedantic kind of socialist. The reason is this. The old, lucid, and trenchant expounder of socialism, such as Blatchlord or Fred Henderson, always describes the economic power of the plutocrats as consisting in private property. 
Of course, in a sense, this is quite true, though they too often miss the point that private property as such is not the same as property confined to the few. But the truth is that the situation has grown much more subtle, perhaps too subtle, not to say too insane, for straight thinking. Theorists like Blatchford, the rich man today, does not only rule by using private property, he also rules by treating public property as if it were private property. A man like Lord Murray pulled the strings, especially the purse strings, but the whole point of his position was that all sorts of strings had got entangled. The secret strength of the money he held did not lie merely in the fact that it was his money, it lay precisely in the fact that nobody had any clear idea of whether it was his money, or his successor's money, or his brother's money, or the Marconi Company's money, or the Liberal Party's money, or the English nation's money. It was buried treasure, but it was not private property. It was the acme of plutocracy, because it was not private property. Now, by following this precedent, this unprincipled vagueness about official and unofficial monies, by the cheerful habit of always mixing up the money in the pocket with the money in the till, it would be quite possible to keep the rich as rich as ever in practice, though they might have suffered confiscation in theory. Mr. Lloyd George has four hundred a year as an MP, but he not only gets much more as a minister, he might at any time get immeasurably more by speculating on state secrets that are necessarily known to him. Some say that he has even attempted something of the kind. Now, it would be quite possible to cut Mr. George down, not to four hundred a year, but to four pence a day, and still leave him all these other and enormous financial superiorities. It must be remembered that a socialist state, in any way resembling a modern state, must, however egalitarian it may be, have the handling of huge sums and the enjoyment of large conveniences. It is not improbable that the same men will handle and enjoy in much the same manner, though in theory they are doing it as instruments and not as individuals. For instance, the Prime Minister has a private house, which is also, I grieve to inform that eminent Puritan, a public house. It is supposed to be a sort of government office, though people do not generally give children's parties or go to bed in a government office. I do not know where Mr. Herbert Samuel lives, but I have no doubt he does himself well in the matter of decoration and furniture. On the existing official parallel, there is no need to move any of these things in order to socialize them. There is no need to withdraw one diamond-headed nail from the carpet or one golden teaspoon from the tray. It is only necessary to call it an official residence like 10 Downing Street. I think it is not at all improbable that this plutocracy, pretending to be a bureaucracy, will be attempted or achieved. Our wealthy rulers will be in the position which grumblers in the world of sport sometimes attribute to some of the gentlemen players. They assert that some of these are paid like any professional, only their pay is called their expenses. This system might be run side by side with the theory of equal wages as absolute as that one laid down by Mr. Bernard Shaw. But the theory of the state, Mr. Herbert Samuels and Mr. Lloyd George, might be humble citizens drudging for their fourpence a day, and no better off than porters and coal-heavers. 
if there were presented to our mere senses what appeared to be the form of mr herbert samuel in an astrakhan coat and a motor-car we should find the record of the expenditure if we could find it at all under the heading of speed limit extension inquiry commission if it fell to our lot to behold with the eye of flesh what seemed to be mr lloyd george lying in a hammock and smoking a costly cigar we should know that the expenditure would be divided between the condition of rope and netting investigation department and the state of cuban tobacco trade imperial inspector's report such is the society i think they will build unless we can knock it down as fast as they build it everything in it tolerable or intolerable will have but one use and that use what our ancestors used to call usance or usury its art may be good or bad but it will be an advertisement for usurers its literature may be good or bad but it will appeal to the patronage of usurers its scientific selection will select according to the needs of usurers its religion will be just charitable enough to pardon usurers its penal system will be just cruel enough to crush all the critics of usurers the truth of it will be slavery and the title of it may quite possibly be socialism end of section four